This is Car Expert. We're seeing a lot of these challenger brands come in at the moment, the Mahindra stuff and Sherry and a couple of other Chinese brands. How much competition is too much competition? Where I think the Tiguan Allspace stands out is in that kind of classic Volkswagen look and feel to everything. You've got the practical side, the really driver-focused side, and then somewhere in between. I think the Mercedes is somewhere in between. William Stopford, hello to you. Hello to you, Mandy. And James Wong, hello. Hey. <laughs> Welcome back to Australia. I, I, oh, I think you. you've been overseas to France. We may have heard it on every single podcast ever said the last four or five weeks. <laughs> oh, did I do a scully and tell everybody about it more than once? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you were there for the launch of the Mercedes AMG C43, which we will review a little bit later on. But I, yes. I think it's worth talking about. The actual life of a car journalist who travels overseas. Uh, what Especially was your experience Especially a dumb like? one like me. <laughs> <laughs> your words. Um, yeah. Well, it's for for those who who don't really know how these things work. Um, I'm sort of fresh into this sort of stuff as well because I haven't done a lot of these international media launches, particularly in um, regions like Europe or the US, which are quite far away. So, um, as much fun as it is to travel across the world and drive cars in fancy places and things like that you're literally in the air for you know a whole day um transiting from australia to europe in this example my final destination was france and um you know you're you're on the ground for two days and then you're basically back to the airport to leave again (laughs) so it's a lot of work you actually sometimes you actually spend more time in the plane than actually on the ground. A hundred percent. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't extended my trip for a couple of days for, you know, some personal leave and, you know, visiting family over in, um, in Spain, I literally would have done that. It would have been, you know, one or two days in the air each way. And then being on the ground for, you know, the better part of two days for the driving component. So it's, it's obviously, I'm I'm not complaining. So, you know, (laughs) Paul, if you're listening, I do want to do it again, but, um, it's, it's as much as it's exciting and, and awesome and, you know, a great experience that, you know, we probably wouldn't experience if we weren't in this line of work. It is very tiring. And then to also then try and gather your thoughts to pull together a, a comprehensive review within a week based on these um, impressions of a vehicle that's, you know, not necessarily to the local spec and you're trying to navigate foreign roads. This was my first time driving left-hand drive on public roads oh. as well. So, oh, how was it? Oh. Um, it was an adjustment. Um, yeah. I, I typically... I'm a fairly confident driver and it, I did have to get my bearings a little bit given um, where we were in the, the Far East, um, you know, countryside of France that, you know, things can move quite quickly there. And so when you're, <laughs> when you're driving some expensive vehicles that you don't really want to be binging against, you know, little Renault Clios, um, you have to be a little bit careful. So um, it, I did get used to it. I, I spent more time in the C43 because yeah, the, the, the second car that we drove is the EQE 53, which I'll be able to talk in a bit more detail next week or the week after. Um, but the C43 is 
it's still a relatively compact vehicle um, that you can sort of get your head around and I spent a bit more time in it. So after a couple of hours, I really warmed up to it and was able to have a little bit of fun. Whereas when I drove the EQE, which is much larger and much more expensive and the weather had turned by the time I got into that one, I was a lot less confident and a lot more like, I don't really want to drive anymore. I want to get I want someone else to drive. <laughs> um, what were the, the most common cars you saw on the road in in France? Well, this was the interesting thing. And and one of the first things I started talking to people about when I got back to the office was like, you know, we, I went to a few different countries as part of this trip. So like to get to France, we had to travel via London and then through um, Basel in Switzerland, which is the airports basically on the French border. And we drove from there to Colmar, which was where our final destination was. So I've basically crossed through three or so countries on that way. And also we hopped over the German border as we were heading to Colmar as well, because that's, it's on that line too. So, when we were in London, we spent the afternoon walking the streets and I'd never, so all the countries that I visited on this trip, including my personal portion of it, I'd never been to any of these countries before. So, you know, this is fresh eyes looking at the world on that side of the, yeah, of wow. the globe. Um, so London was really interesting because when we traveled and had a walk around Paddington, which I think is one of the nicer areas, but every second car, there's like a, an electric Kia Nero or like a black S-Class hire car. Yeah, it was really interesting. And then, you know, you see the odd Volkswagen ID3, ID4 there. So it's cool to see these cars in person because I've been covering the industry for the better part of six years now. And a lot of these European-specific models that I've never seen in person before, I get to see them on the road. Um, And to see the the really high ratio of plug-in hybrid and electric vehicles was really nice to see. It made me think, well, if only Australia was a little bit more like this. Um, And then once you get into France, um, they have a much higher ratio of French cars, tip, uh, as you would expect. So you see a lot of like Renault Captors, Renault Clios, Peugeot 2008 and 2008. Um, and you see a few DSs there as well. Um, and then when I got to Spain, similar story to France, they they obviously have a very rich local car industry there. So a lot of Seats, a lot of Cupras. It was really cool to see Cupra vehicles in person for the first time. Um, the Formenta is a very, very popular vehicle there already. Um, one of my cousins was saying that, you know, if they're, they're very popular. You see them everywhere. And she has friends that work at the Seat factory, um, which you can see the head office driving to my mother's hometown, which was part of my trip, which is, is me digressing wow. a little bit. But it was, it was such a great experience. So um, – um, I had the the experience with the Mercedes guys on this um, AMG launch was easily like the most the the best experience I've had in my career so far as as a journal being able to experience this whole European media launch thing and we got to see some really awesome countryside and scenery and drive on some epic roads in um, the C43 and the EQE 53. Um, I have plenty of highlights on my Instagram profile if anyone can be bothered spending the time going through it because I did <laughs> upload a lot of photos. Um, but I guess I can talk through the impressions of the car later. But yeah, um, still a little bit jet lagged, but I had a really good time. Car news, guys, I'm really keen to hear what you think about the 2023 Hyundai Ioniq 6. It's finally been revealed, JWo. Yeah, I, I surprisingly like it a lot. Um, we've seen the f- initial design a while ago with the Hyundai Prophecy concept, which was a lot sexier and more sports car-like, but this has sort of translated it into a almost like a 
electric Mercedes CLA, not to be offensive to Hyundai if they don't want to have other brands in the same <laughs> sentence. But, you know, this is like this compact, really aerodynamic um, four-door coupe that's based on the same EGMP architecture as the Ionic 5 and Kia EV6, just to name a few. Um, they don't really have many specs for it yet. This was sort of like a – I think there were some pictures leaked early um, online, so Hyundai decided to get ahead of the curve and start sending um, the images live first i think it looks really really cool um it sort of stays true to the original concept while also making it you know production friendly i think the interior looks really really classy they've used um eco-friendly and sustainable materials um there's a real focus on um, aerodynamics so it's got some ridiculous drag coefficient of just 0.21 0.21 so i imagine that you know combine that with a with the high density battery that is available in the ev6 and the ionic 5 that you'll easily see range of about 500 kilometers but that's all still to be confirmed um, it should offer a, a, a number of drivetrain options including um, two wheel drive and all wheel drive so single motor and dual motor um, other than that we really don't know that much so th- there's reported uh, measurements of um, 4.855 meters in length, 1.495 meters uh, height, and 1.88 meters wide. So it seems like it's almost the size of a Sonata, but in ter- in terms of the 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 images, it looks quite compact. So I'm as much as I, I've seen the 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 prototypes rolling around with camouflage and we've been reporting on this car for yonks and um, to see it sort of in the metal, it actually looks, it, it comes together quite well. And I imagine given the dimensions that it might actually be even better in person because if you can kind of get that better impression of length and width from the vehicle when you're actually standing next to it, I think that's quite exciting. And I think that the, it's, it's a much more resolved interior than say the Ionic 5, which sort of, it does that, ikea open plan sort of vibe very well but this one's a bit more conventional while whilst also keeping the the cool stuff about the five so i saw this and i was like oh god maybe i might have to go electric with my next car like i'm really excited to see this in person and give it a drive so i don't know what you guys think um happy to open the floor to uh your opinions (sighs) will's screwing up his face i don't think it's a positive reaction i don't know so when they revealed the Mercedes-Benz EQS, I think I recall saying, oh, I really like this. And then the more I looked at it, I just hated it and hated it. And then I looked at it the other day, I'm like, maybe I like it again. <laughs> and I feel like the Ionic 6 is one of those cars for me where I'm going to maybe eventually like it and then maybe stop liking it again. I, I Look, I suspect it's one of those cars that will, will really pop in person. And I have to say that although the change from the prophecy concept to the Ionic 6 production vehicle uh, has seen a dramatically redesigned front and rears for the vehicle. It's it's really got those concept car proportions. It's really stayed loyal to that. It's still got this really wild shape. And I think no matter how you feel about the design, it's going to be one of those cars that when you see it on the road, you're going to be like, wow, this looks like nothing else. I will mm-hmm. say perhaps my thing about it isn't so much that it's got this droopy butt, because there are various droopy butt cars uh, like the AU Falcon and the (laughs) Infiniti J30 and all of that that I actually don't mind. I I think it's kind of like the the fussy bumpers that add these very angular vertical elements to a car that's otherwise very much this kind of one bow design. Mm. So maybe that's what's getting it for me. But Mandy, what do you think? Yeah, look, I, I I don't know if I'm feeling the rear of that. It's it's got like the nine eleven, you know, long tail light happening in mm. the back. 
Uh, the the front's okay. I'm still warming to the design at first glance. I, I'm just not really that sure. But I agree with Joe. I think I'd prefer to see it in person, but I really, really like the interior. I thought that of of the three Ionic branded vehicles that I was probably going to like the sedan the most because I tend to love sedans. But the Ionic mm. 5, I, I prefer the design of that. And the Ionic 7, I know it's only been previewed in concept form, but I, th- I think I'm probably going to like the production version of that more than this. Uh, but mm. it's, it's interesting and kudos for Hyundai to, uh, for uh, styling something that's this dramatic. Out of the box. Yes. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> um, now, the 2022 Ram 1500 TRX, we have pricing for this, and holy dooly, Will, how much we're oh, looking at? I love that we've just blown from a very efficient, aerodynamic, sleek, <laughs> low sedan to this east. Um, so, Ram has, Ram Trucks Australia has priced the 1500 TRX. Uh, it will be coming here at price from $199,950 before on-road costs. Um, so, yep. yeah, that is around $50,000 more than the next most expensive Ram 1500, uh, but a lot more capability here. However, put it into perspective here, this is basically twice the price of a Ford Ranger Raptor. So, just something to consider. Um, now, this has got a supercharged 6.2-litre V8 engine producing 523 kilowatts of power and 882 metres of torque. So, it is not wanting for power. That's actually up 232 kilowatts and 326 metres over the regular V8 in, in the Ram 1500. And that's actually almost 200 kilowatts and 200 metres more than the Ford F-150 Raptor, which basically invented this segment of off-road, wild, uh, full-size pickup trucks. So, you can actually rocket this freaking thing to 100 kilometers an hour in 4.5 seconds. Uh, but unless you think it, it – don't don't think that this is just, uh, just another pickup truck that they've just wedged a big engine into because they've done a lot uh, to make it more rugged and off-road ready. Uh, so, there's a new dual-path air induction system that's designed to keep the engine cool when you're blasting through the desert um, and an air filter system is designed to keep all that <laughs> desert sand out of the cabin. Um, <laughs> the ladder frame is made of thicker high strength steel uh, so it can hold up to more adventurous driving over rough terrain. There's more skid plates. Uh, there's retuned suspension, a Dana 60 rear axle with floating shafts, an electronic locking rear differential. Like this is a laundry list of modifications that they have done to the 1500 to make it a TRX. Now, the F-150 Raptor has been around for several years now. Sadly, we've never gotten it here. And even though Ford has confirmed that it's going to be uh, introducing a locally re-engineered for right-hand drive version of the F-150 next year. Um, They have not included the Raptor among the list of variants that will be coming here. So, along comes, you know, Ram Trucks Australia, again, uh, converting their vehicles imported in left-hand drive to right-hand drive locally. Uh, But they've just basically gotten the jump on Ford. So, even though Ram has been several years behind in getting into the segment, they're actually going to beat Ford to it in Australia. Uh, so, I'm curious to hear what you guys think about this vehicle that is very much the opposite of a Hyundai Ionic 6. <laughs> <laughs> what do you reckon, Joe? 
Uh, well, I guess that this kind of pricing was to be expected. It's a very niche product, and I think the kind of people that are going to buy it didn't really care how much it cost. So, you know, True. there's an element of um, exclusivity, and you know, while some people might just view it as a, you know, as as Will described it before, just an American pickup truck with a, sh- a big engine shoehorned into it. I think that um, as Ford has demonstrated with the Ranger Raptor that there is such a thirst and hunger for these kinds of vehicles in Australia. I think that the the local market is so keen on, you know, getting getting the best of what you can get for whatever it is. It's It's been a, a the case of the Australian market is always getting the top of the range model. And then once you get to the top of range model, you get special editions and then, you know, bespoke products and all that kind of stuff. And I think that there's such a big market for these things. It's As you say, Will, it's a shame that Ford hasn't cashed in on it yet because given how popular the F-150 Raptor has been in the States, I can only imagine if they brought it here, they'd sell every single one they can get. So... You know, it doesn't surprise me. Everything's expensive these days. And that car, this vehicle has so much capability and so much performance. There's nothing like it on the road at the moment. Maybe perhaps other than the Ram 1500 TRX that was converted by somebody else first. Yeah. <laughs> like it wasn't there. In a, so, <laughs> you know, it, it, it's sort of playing alone so they can charge whatever they want. Um, and I don't blame them, especially in, the, in, in today's market. People are willing to pay much higher than retail for what they want. So you may as well cash in on, <laughs> cash in on that while you can. And, and, you know, kudos to whoever wants to drive these and bully anyone out of the way in suburbia because I would not want that sitting behind me <laughs> on the freeway no, in the right no. way. <laughs> Your little golf. Yeah, yeah, I was going to say that. <laughs> How would I fill in my little up? Oh, my oh, God. No. Oh, my God. I'd probably <laughs> suck you through the me. grill. <laughs> probably. <laughs> now, moving on to the next story, J-Wo, China's cherry is coming back to Australia. It was actually one of the original Chinese brands here and then left. And I guess they've seen how well uh, Great Wall Motors, Havel, MG and LDV are doing here. So they've decided to come back. Uh, A a trio of crossovers or SUVs will be leading the charge here, um, all with very interesting names. So it'll start off with the Amoda 5, which I I believe that's how I say it. Um, It looks kind of like a, it looks like the kind of car that the aliens in Toy Story would use i can't remember what they're called the lgms it looks like the lgm car you've saved our lives we are eternally grateful anyway i'm sorry i'm a little bit jet lagged i'm going on a tangent and then they've got the um tigo 7 and tigo 8 so you know another disney reference you've got tigger's cars and maybe you can have seven tiggers and eight and depending on how many seats there are um so these (laughs) These crossovers. You need to go overseas more often, J-Wo. <laughs> yeah, I know. God, I, I don't know what's wrong with me. Um, so the, the Amoda 5 is something, you know, about Havel Jolion sized. And then you get to the Tigo 7, which is, you know, maybe slightly smaller than a Mazda CX-5. And then you've got the Tigo 8, which is actually a seven-seater and, you know, roundabout in size to a Skoda Kodiak or Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace, which um, the latter Will will be speaking about later today. Um, so that that gives you an idea of what these um, vehicles are sort of sizing up against in terms of what they're going to be priced at. We don't know, um, given the fact that Sherry has always been sort of like a, a budget brand both here, and I would say it's a similar story in China given it's a domestic product. Um, it'll sort of probably follow the, the likes of MG and Great Wall Motors in 
trying to maximize on value and bang for buck. Um, and yeah, in terms of when we're going to see them, I think they've sort of just said it's coming at some point. We haven't really seen more final details about what the range is going to look like, what, how, what pricing it's going to be. They've got a couple of, uh, they've got one of each car coming in July so that people can walk into showrooms and have a look. Um, but in terms of when the, the first customer vehicles are going to start coming, we don't really have that that information yet so previously we've had the j1 j3 and j11 um sherry models coming into australia they're all like cheap budget copy versions of other cars the j1 sort of looks like an old hyundai gets the j3 was something like an i30 daewoo lanos thing and then the j11 suv was sort of like a an old crv or old kia sportage replica um none of them were very successful i'm pretty sure from everything that i read of them when i was younger they weren't particularly well acclaimed so i'm sure these new (laughs) products will push the game forward a little bit i guess this is sort of like the combustion version of um byd so we might see them you know offering this really cool design and space and tech and whatever We'll, we'll just have to wait and see we don't have too many details yet but i don't know what you guys think but we're seeing a lot of these challenger brands come in at the moment we're probably going to see them you know it's almost like the mahindra stuff and you've got um sherry and a couple of other chinese brands sort of finding it out in the the value space of the segment what how much competition is too much competition yeah look the chinese brands are making bank at the moment mg is a top 10 brand now you've got gwm havel uh that's uh, also growing market share but um, with all those successes, we've also seen Chinese brands come and go in the past. And we're, we've gotten to this point where the market is absolutely saturated with brands. I mean, we've always been a very competitive market given our small size. Um, but, you know, we've just gotten Polestar here. Um, we've got Cooper launching this year, obviously very different price and price points and positioning here but this is just yet another brand and i think cherry is going to want to hope that nobody draws the connection between cherry now and cherry 10 years ago because as you said Mm. they were one of the first brands to come here their cars were not very good um if you do get the chance listeners uh vivek did a very very good brand overview on cherry uh they were basically formed in the 90s their first car was a, a an old cast off Seat Toledo with whatever engines they had lying around. So they've come a long way since then. And I think uh, it's important to to look at at the progress the Chinese brands have made. And um, if you look at, for example, Great Wall Motors now, well, one, they rebranded just just in case anybody tried to draw the connection between GWM and Great Wall. But a GWM ute is a a pretty solid ute. Um, It's pretty competitive. It's pretty nicely pointed inside, seems to be well built. It's a, it's a far cry from the old, you know, V240 utes you see rolling around with uh, faded paint and, and falling <laughs> trim pieces. So, um, I don't know if, if Cherry has made the same leaps and bounds that Great Wall Motors has um, or that MG has over the past decade, uh, but it's, uh, it's yet another brand for a very crowded market. Um, and I, I'm very curious to see how Cherry thinks that they'll, they're going to be able to distinguish themselves because one thing that MG has had in their favor that has helped propel them uh, to being a top 10 brand is people have heard of MG before and mm. the brand has good connotations because uh, people go, oh, yeah, yeah, wow, it's an established British brand. There's a lot of people out there who don't realize that MG is actually Chinese owned. Um, now, Cherry is, for one, a 
just a random name that people are going to be like, I'm sorry, what did you say? Did you say Chevy? <laughs> um, <laughs> it's got a random kind of very derivative looking logo. It's people, it, when it was here, it wasn't super successful. Um, but uh, if you do want to read more about uh, Cherry, definitely check out Vivek's article and check out my 25 years of failures article, uh, which, spoiler alert, Cherry <laughs> did disappear <laughs> <laughs> quite quickly. Um, but, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, certainly. Well, we're going to stick with uh, the Chinese car theme. Finally, will the 2023 MG4 electric, we have details for this ahead of hopefully a uh, local launch. Yes. Uh, unfortunately, MG seems to have chosen a rather more uh, conservative name for export markets uh, because this same vehicle that is going to be called the MG4 electric in Europe is co- being called the MG Mulan. Um, like Why the didn't they keep that name. I know, I know. It's just like, come on, lean into it. Rich history, China. Yeah. Pick a Chinese name. It's like BYD with their Song and, and Tang, and you know all the cars named after dynasties. Um, but the MG4 electric is a pretty funky looking electric mm. hatchback, roughly the size of like a Volkswagen ID3 or Cupra Born. Uh, it is going on sale in Europe in the fourth quarter of this year. Uh, and MG has indicated that we should expect to see it here um, in the first half of 2023. Uh, now, it will be available with a choice of two batteries, a 51 kilowatt hour and a 64 kilowatt hour. Uh, the former has got 350 kilometers of range on the WLTP cycle. The latter has got 450 kilometers of range, so pretty decent. Um, 125 kilowatts of power with uh, the uh, smaller battery, 150 kilowatt electric motor with the larger battery. Um, and this is a new platform that's been developed by MG's parent Sake Motor. Uh, it's a rear wheel drive platform, but MG has indicated that we should expect to see dual motor all wheel drive versions eventually. Um, but Look, it's it's a very interesting looking car. It's got a 400 volt electrical system. MG says that they're planning on developing an 800 volt electrical system in future. This platform is going to underpin everything from hatchbacks like this to SUVs and even vans. And MG's, well, Sake Motor as well has been touting this very, very slim battery um, that they have developed to maximize uh, interior space. And speaking of the interior, they've only released one photo, but it looks pretty nice and 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 neat uh typical you know large screens as i mean if you look at a lot of chinese market cars they're just obsessed with screens now go and look at a mm. for example a ford evos uh, that's been developed by chang'an ford it's just screen from one end of the uh, one side to the other of the cabin uh, but look, I'll be very interested to see how this goes here, keeping in mind that the MG ZS EV, although it is a distant second, is still the, or was still the second best selling electric vehicle in Australia in 2021 behind the Tesla Model 3. I suspect the Tesla Model Y and uh, Model 3 are going to keep the one and two spots for next year. But if MG can kind of corner this more affordable um entry-level kind of electric vehicle market while also fending off other upstarts like BYD that's just started selling electric vehicles here. Uh, they We could be seeing a lot of Mulan, MG4 electrics on our roads. <laughs> <laughs> what price do you reckon it needs to be at, J-Wo, for, for people to to think this is you know, a pretty good option? Well, I think the problem is, is that we have such limited choice in terms of, you know, we were just talking before about how we have such a saturated market in terms of brands. When you get into the electric vehicle segment, we really have no choice. And so when you're, I would say it would need to 
price benchmark itself against the MGZSEV. Like <laughs> MG literally <laughs> would have to just price it against itself um, yeah. because I think while the BYD stuff, people are interested in it, you know, it's new, it's got a bit of wow factor and all that kind of stuff. The fact that, A, it's not a factory-backed operation and, and B, it's not a brand that has any sort of history or significance in our market, I think it'll continue to be a niche player until BYD officially, you know, makes its mark here and starts stamping dealers or support networks around. So, you know, when you're buying a when you're buying a vehicle through, for lack of a better word, something that sounds like, you know, a rival to Alibaba or, you know, Amazon.com. That's what I think of. That's what I, when I hear EV direct, it sounds like, like, you know, one of those online shopping or e-commerce yep. portals. It doesn't make me think, oh, wow. Like, cause that's a lot of money to spend. I don't care what anyone says. $40,000 might be a cheap EV. It's a lot of money. So, yeah. I mean, in, in fairness, BYD is going to start selling uh, vehicles through the Eagers automotive network of dealerships. So I think that yes. will, that will make it a little bit more palatable for people taking a, a chance on an unknown brand but i see i see exactly yeah. what you mean and it also plays into the fact that mg is a brand that people are more familiar with because they've got Absolutely. the runs on the board they've been here for longer even uh, under their current chinese ownership um i think you're absolutely right james the, the ZSEV is going to be priced what 46 grand drive away or so. That's kind of the sweet spot I think the Mulan needs to be at because that still undercuts uh, something like the Kia Niro, which uh, is considerably pricier, uh, even in base electric guys. And all the kind of Korean and, and upcoming Japanese EVs are noticeably more expensive than a ZSEV. So there's a lot of, there's a real appetite out there. Uh, for electric vehicles, but a, a lot of people are, you know, still bulking at the cost of that. Um, now, the Chinese brands could seriously uh, corner a large section of the market if they introduce vehicles that are priced competitively. So, we'll absolutely, I think the looking at the the actual aesthetic of the MG4 as well, it sort of looks like the the Nissan Leaf and the Kia EV6 had a baby. So, like. I reckon you could, given it's got decent range, apparently, according to the company and should be priced fairly well, you might start seeing all these Nissan Leaf owners trying to get in for an MG4. You never know. (laughs) Yeah, never know indeed. Hit the car news link at carexpert.com.au. This week's first review, it's taken care of by you. Will, uh, you've been driving the Volkswagen Tiguan Allspace. You're a poet and you didn't realise it. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, anyone who doesn't know what the Allspace is, uh, can you fill us in? Yes. uh, So, basically, take a Tiguan, stretch a little bit, add a third row of seats, you have a Tiguan Allspace. Um, Basically... uh, This is made in Mexico and the US market gets this body, but they don't get the third row of seats because they've got the larger Atlas crossover there. We don't get the Atlas, unlike the US, unlike China, Canada, etc. So, if you want a three-row Volkswagen SUV, this is the one that you actually have to get because the Touareg, even though it's larger, is only a two-row SUV. So, the Tiguan Allspace has been in Australia since 2018. Um, it currently accounts for 55% of global Tiguan production. Uh, and here, it's worked out to be about 41% of Tiguan sales. So, yeah, effectively, if you really like the Tiguan, 
and you just need to have that occasional use of a third row. And I want to stress that we'll come back to that. Um, <laughs> then the T1 Allspace is, is the vehicle that you want to get. And it's it's a corporate cousin to the Skoda Kodiak. Um, obviously, it looks quite a bit different. I think personally, the Kodiak looks much nicer externally than the Tiguan. But I'll tell you what, mm-hmm. this recent facelift, so that was the whole reason for the launch event, um, was for the facelift of the Allspace. So the regular two-row Tiguan was facelifted recently and now the Allspace has gotten the treatment. So there's updates inside and out, new technology, etc. cetera. Um, and uh, look, it, uh, it, it looks uh, nicer than it did before. Will, how much is the, the Tiguan Allspace? So there's a wide range of models. So the, the the model range effectively mirrors the regular Tiguan, except there's no R, so sorry to disappoint. Um, but you've got a choice of four different engines, one turbo diesel, three turbo petrol, um, and the pricing starts at 44590 before on-roads for the 110 TSI Life and goes all the way up to 61690 before on-roads for the 147 TDI line. So, in terms of what it's priced up against, um, if you look at a Mazda CX-8, which is very conceptually similar, take a CX-5, make it a little bit longer, add a third row of seats, that's priced between 40 and upwards of 69k um, wow. before on-roads. But they've got that that fancy Azami Ellie or whatever, um, different kettle of fish. Um, then you've also got the Hyundai Santa Fe, which is a bit bigger. Um, it's especially in the third row uh, to the Tiguan Allspace. That's priced between 45, 550 and 66.050 before on-road costs. Um, there's other other three-row SUVs around that price point. You've got uh, the Toyota Kluger as well. So you are looking at the Tiguan Allspace is priced up against some larger vehicles, definitely. Um, but compared to a regular Tiguan, so there are some differences in specs. So there's a couple of features that you can't get in the regular Tiguan that you can in the Allspace. But if you just compare variance between the two model ranges, you're looking at paying between $1,900 and $2,500 more, uh, which is not too bad for, for the extra usability that you get with this. The space, literally, uh, in the third row, is it sort of roomy back there? I just, I just had to laugh at space because every time I go to type all space on my Mac, it always corrects it to all spice. <laughs> so, I thought you going to say it puts a space in between the two words. No, That's no, weird. that would make sense, wouldn't it? Um, <laughs> so, look, um, the third row is, is effectively unchanged from uh, the pre-update model. So, it's not... Look, I would say I always make sure to clamber into the third row of, of anything that I get. Um, and it's probably a little bit more comfortable than a CRV back there, which is a bit of a shorter vehicle. Um, but it's not going to be as comfortable as a Santa Fe. Now, keep in mind as well, um, a lot of these, a lot of those kind of larger crossovers, like even Kluger's, the third row is best save for children not all of them even have mm. anchor points for child seats in the back so it's for a particular kind of age and size of of child um as an adult you do not want to be back in the third row of a tiguan all space but frankly i'm 5'11 and i don't like being in the back of a kluger um but uh compare this to a santa fe not quite as spacious but where I think the, the Tiguan Allspace all spice stands out is in that kind of classic Volkswagen look and feel 
to everything. Um, so it's it's gotten a little bit of a um, a polish up for 2022. There's a 10.25-inch digital instrument cluster standard across the range. You now get the option of ventilated front seats, which you can't get in a two-row Tiguan from memory. Um, there's the latest generation of infotainment. And you, you step into it and, I, I don't know, Volkswagen Interiors, I think a lot of people like them because they might be a bit austere, but they they have that very straightforward layout. You've got a center stack that's angled towards the driver. Everything just looks very logically laid out. And thankfully, Volkswagen hasn't deigned to um, remove all the buttons from the Tiguan with this yes. updated model like they did with the Golf. So there's this new little climate control array that's touch capacitive and doesn't work as well as the the last one did, but... I don't know, it looks all right, I suppose. Um, but there are actually still buttons in the cabin, buttons in the center console. There's none of this, you know, there's very little of this touch capacitive annoying stuff that I, I, I've not met a single person that actually enjoys. Uh, so, Will, you've mentioned that the Tiguan Allspace is effectively a stretched Tiguan. In your review, you go through the dimensional discrepancies. How does that translate to the on-road experience given the standard Tiguan is generally generally regarded as one of the, the higher end of the, the medium SUV segment in terms of on-road experience? Well, look, in fairness, this was my first time driving an Allspace. I've obviously driven a Tiguan before, but uh, we took uh, our drive route was mostly kind of inner city, kind of suburban driving, and then a jaunt onto the highway. So I didn't really get a chance to put it through its paces on, on a winding road. But all the the, gen, the general kind of Tiguan bona fides are there. It's it's it it feels much a muchness. I don't know. I've, have you driven an Allspace before, James? Yeah, I have, and I've driven the Kodiak as well. Um, so I always found that because of the extended wheelbase, um, it's a, it, it's a little bit more sort of like when you get into a bigger sedan compared to a smaller one. There's just a bit more of a there's a nicer ride to it because of the extended length, um, but then also that translates to a more hefty feel when you start going to tighter things because obviously when you go into the city it's a much larger vehicle it doesn't corner as sharply and things like that but it still has that more that very nice as you said the way that volkswagens are laid out are a certain way and the way that they drive particularly given the mqb platform is so prolific amongst their range now there's a consistency to how they all drive so it sort of just feels like a, a slightly enlarged version Actually, funny that you mentioned ride quality. Uh, I was a little bit surprised. I kind of thought, because we had a chance to drive the 110 TSI Life, the 147 TDI Elegance, and the 162 TSI R-Line. And I've driven uh, Tiguan 162 uh, TSI R-Line. Oh, these names are so long. <laughs> Before. Um, and... Look, I, I was perhaps expecting there to be a, a significant difference in ride quality between it and the 110 TSI, which obviously is on smaller wheels, um, doesn't have uh, adaptive suspension. But I was still, I was still genuinely expecting the airline to to be a bit more of kind of flinty or firm and ride. But the life, actually, to be fair, still has is quite firmly suspended. Um, so I don't think it's really that much of a uh, demerit to step up to uh, the airline. Um, at least when we're, when we're talking about ride quality. And the R-Line does look sharp. And I I usually 
would consider myself more of like an, an elegance person, like in the respect of mm. I, I don't necessarily gravitate towards the sporty looking variants in a model range. Um, but the R-Line does look really nice inside and out and the sports seats have a really nice amount of bolstering and then you get the metal pedals and you get the steering wheel with the kind of uh, perforated leather on the sides and you kind of understand why the R-Line is, I, th- I think from memory, like the most popular variant in the, in the Tiguan Allspace lineup. Um, so it's, it's got a little bit of stardust on it. Um, but as I mentioned, we got to drive three different engines. So there was not a 132 TSI um, there at the launch event. I had just had experienced that engine in, in the Skoda Kodiak though. Um, I thought I was definitely going to come away going, the 110 T- TSI is decent, the 162 TSI is excellent, and the 147 TDI was okay, but maybe not my first pick. But the turbo diesel actually makes a lot of sense. It's really not that much slower than the more powerful um, 162 TSI. And it, look, it's got a little bit of that diesel clatter to it, but it's, it's hardly a ute. Um, and <laughs> it's obviously fuel efficient uh, based on, on Volkswagen's fuel economy claims. So it feels like kind of the sweet spot in the lineup for me, but you do pay a little bit extra for it compared to a 162 TSI. Will, earlier you mentioned um, there's some new tech and I covered the, the regular Tiguan facelift about a year ago. And so there's quite a, quite a few new features from that new IQ drive banner and you've got matrix LED headlights available and things like that. How much of this tech did you use and do you find that there's any tangible improvements based on your previous experience? Well, I did try the travel assist because as I mentioned, we did do a bit of highway driving in the all spaces. Um, look, it's, 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 it's good technology. Um, I think um, so. Travel Assist basically is a, is a combination of adaptive cruise control and a, a lane kind of assist system. So, in theory, um, it keeps you centered in your lane while you're driving along the highway. Keeps you at a certain speed. Uh, slows you down. Obviously, your vehicles are in front. Blah blah blah. Uh, so we're, we've seen this technology in in a, in a lot of different vehicles. Uh, I think in terms of how it keeps you centered in a lane, I think Hyundai and Kia's. Um, lane following assist are a little bit more on the ball when it comes to that. Uh, it's not that the Volkswagen system was bad, um, but uh, I guess I was maybe expecting it to be a little bit better than it was. Um, they, I, I know this is kind of divided opinions because if, if you read uh, some of my reviews, I'll say whenever I'm in the Hyundai or Kia, wow, the lane following assist is really good. Highway, highway driving's a doddle. Um, but <laughs> then if you read, say, Scott's reviews, he's like, oh, it's really intrusive and annoying. It's frustrating. <laughs> so it's different strokes for different folks. But I think if you like that whole idea of getting into a car and feeling like it's almost going to drive itself on a highway, uh, I don't think Volkswagen's travel assist is, is quite that good. Um, but again, Limited drive experience. We all know what launch uh, launch reviews are like, uh, launches are like, I should say. So I'll be very keen to uh, spend some more time behind the wheel when we get one through the garage. Hmm. What car expert rating did you give it? I gave it a 7.8 out of 10. So I think what probably lets the Tiguan Allspace down is... Yes, it's 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 got obviously got more room and more versatility than a regular Tiguan, but it's not quite as spacious as something like a Santa Fe or a Sorento. Um, but it is priced up against those vehicles. Um, and 
look, I, I think that that that's to its detriment. It's also probably not the cheapest vehicle to service in um, in this price point. So, look, if you love Tiguans, uh, I think you'll love the Tiguan All Space. It keeps basically all of the virtues of the Tiguan, but adds a little bit more space. Uh, but I, I would highly recommend if you are checking one out, do check out the competition as well, um, because there's a lot of there's a lot of really good vehicles in this in this kind of medium large kind of three row segment. Well, if you'd like to read more, that review is live at Car Expert. And for our second review this week is also coming from a panel member. As we heard, J-Wo, in the intro, you're in France driving the Mercedes-AMG C43. A bit of a new model. Can you give us the lowdown? Well, it's an all-new product. So the it's basically the first performance model to come out of the latest generation um, Mercedes-Benz C-Class range. So we've had the C200 and C300 come through the office and uh, we also have covered it um, from the Australian media launch a few months ago now. So I travelled to... It's hard to say where I actually traveled to because I went so many places and we were sort of hopping over borders during the time there. But we ended up in Colmar, which is in like the far eastern part of France and um, drove the C43 and as well as the new EQE53, which I will be able to talk about next week. Um, so the C43, it, there's a few big changes that have come about for this new generation. Not only does it take on the new form and of the, the latest C-Class with all of the the tech inside, including the the Mini S-Class MBUX 2.0 infotainment system. Um, The new C43 has ditched the old twin turbo V6 and put in a two-litre turbocharged four. Now, does it sound familiar? Yes, it's because it's a version of the same engine that's in the A45 hyper hatch. I say hyper hatch because it's a wild 300 kilowatt small car so surely that's not just the golf r levels of performance (laughs) so this engine has obviously been modified a little bit it's now mounted longitudinally not transversely Um, it's on a rear drive bias platform and it's also in this iteration been electrified so there's a 48 volt mild hybrid system built in and it's also got an electric Mercedes calls it an electric exhaust gas turbocharger or something to that effect. Basically, there's a really small electric motor that lives in the turbo and spins it up before the exhaust gases come through. So um, as most of us would know and most people who are listening who've ever experienced a turbo car, one aspect of turbocharged driving is generally the turbo lag. Now, modern turbocharged engines have sort of found ways to get around that, whether it's you know, tuning, calibrating the turbo to spool up early and you get peak torque at about 1,500 revs, which is just above idle, but you still get that small window of lag or, or, or low response. Um, so this aims to basically eliminate that. can also add up to 10 kilowatts of power under load. Um, and then also the, the other, on the flip side of that, um, the efficiency side is that it's theoretically meant to be able to allow the, the engine to coast, so decouples the engine from the transmission under low engine load. Um, as you come to a stop, it can extend the idle stop-start function, so it basically engages from about 20 kilometres an hour as you decelerate to zero. Um, so it's it's meant to be more efficient than the the old V6. The the WLTP figures out of Europe, um, I think, is slightly different to what we get in ADR figures. So the ADR figure for the old V6 was about 9.5 or 9.6 litres per 100 Ks on the combined cycle. Um, depending on the specification for the European spec C43, you get anywhere between 8.7 and 9.1 litres per 100 Ks. The way that um, European 
market vehicles quote their fuel consumption is a bit funny because that little window is very dependent on your specification. So it comes down to things like wheels and tires, um, whether you've added things like heavy items like a panoramic sunroof, which will then weigh your car down and use more fuel and, and things to that effect. So the car is actually more powerful, but with less torque. So it's got 300 kilowatts and 500 newton meters. And obviously you can get that extra 10 kilowatts when you're under acceleration. Um, it's, it claims to be 0.1 seconds quicker to 100 than the old V6. And it will max out at 250, well, an electronically limited top speed of 250 kilometers an hour. And then it's also in Europe available there's an available option to extend that to 265. So this is not a slow vehicle, and despite the the loss of displacement and cylinders, it's still every bit as quick as the old one, as far as Mercedes-AMG will tell you. How does it sound, though? Because going from a six-cylinder to a four-cylinder... Yeah, well, most most anyone who knows how cars sound, as soon as you see that if, if a vehicle like that is going from a, a V6 or a six-cylinder engine down to a four-cylinder, you immediately know that it's going to change the, the, the theatre and the soundtrack to it, especially given that it's an AMG vehicle. AMGs have long been known for not only their, you know, wild performance, but also the soundtrack and the soul and the theatre that comes with that. So, I don't know. I At the beginning, I was sort of underwhelmed by it it just sound it, it's a little bit synthesized i don't find the a45 even to be that good sounding as a considering the the, the class of vehicle that it and and the price bracket well they've tried to add in you know pops and cracks on upshifts a little bit of like um overrun so in its most aggressive settings it's it's making making a, a litany of noises but when you're really going at it it just doesn't it it's not it doesn't sound authentic and i remember there was one time in a previous job where i drove a c43 cabriolet very briefly and i just put the roof down and i think i was driving around richmond or something and i went under a tunnel with the exhaust <laughs> open and there's something about like performance six cylinder engines particularly v6s they have this really brassy high pitched tone mm, which is yeah. really addictive and almost sounds like half of a v12 which you know if you do simple maths it, you can see why, <laughs> but but like a, an inline four cylinder, it just it, it it has like this like gruff, gravelly burble to it. It does have a, a sporty tone, but it just doesn't sound quite as soulful or authentic as you know something with a bigger block. And unfortunately, that's just the way it's going to be these days. We're seeing so many manufacturers downsize. But when you compare the C forty three to competitors, like you know the M three forty i X Drive still has that lovely inline six turbo, and you know we we know that six cylinder BMWs are still the bee's knees. The Audi S4 has a turbocharged V6 still, which sounds really nice. So I don't know. A lot of I feel like a lot of people buy AMGs to be hooligans because that's the kind of the kind of experience that it, it, it offers. It's very loud. It's very brash. They're just sort of silly and they go really fast and they're not as sharp as a BMW. They're not necessarily as comfortable or practical as a, an Audi S product. So this this new 43 sort of strikes a, this sort of balance between the two in terms of how it drives and behaves I, I did have a lot of fun with it i actually spent more time in the wagon which unfortunately we're not going to get here um oh. and i having just stepped out of that golf r wagon which i really enjoyed the drive of that it sort of felt like a more grown-up version of the golf r wagon because you get standard wheel drive it's got a 61 39 um rear to front torque balance so it's got a little it's more a little bit more rear bias and it's also variable on the fly so it'll you know it'll shuffle torque as you need it um and it also has standard rear wheel steering so 
it means that the, the the wheels will turn slightly in the same direction as the fronts when you're going at high speeds, and then will turn in the opposite direction at low speeds to minimize the turning circle. And you can sort of feel it working. It's kind of a weird sensation. It's almost like there's something. I'm trying to think. I'm trying to think of like the the way to describe it. There's like that. You know when you watch screensavers and they have that they move like zigzags and then you sort of see how it follows you after that's sort of what it felt like. I don't know if I verbalize that very well, but I feel like Mandy gets what I'm saying. (laughs) Interesting Um, way of explaining it though. Yeah. I was, I was in my mind, I was just trying to think of something that came to mind that sort of evoked that movement and feel, but so it, it it does feel very stable. I was quite impressed. Um, One of the, the, the drive route that I took with the wagon was about a two hour drive route that took me up through a mountain and pass and down near Colmar there's a few mountains there that have some like ski towns and so even though it was summer when I went and you could see the ski lifts not operating there's a lot of really really wonderful twisty uphill downhill roads that really allowed me to test out the grip the you know powering out of corners that kind of thing there is a lot of grip and you can really push this car hard and you know really it's it it doesn't just you can really push it gradually and you get the most out of it it's not one of those cars that like you sort of reach a point then it just snaps out and you know makes you pay for it um it just doesn't feel the 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 steering is not as connected or as direct as i would have liked it does feel a little bit numb and a little bit over assisted so you don't quite get that same sensation again this is something that is happening across the industry i don't find a lot of modern bmws to be particularly connected at the front either but it just seems like the 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 driver controls of the amg even in its most aggressive setting is still a little bit damped so you just don't get that same feel through the front as you might with you know i'm trying to think of an equivalent that might have like an alfa romeo julia um, that's still easily the benchmark for um, like driver feel and you know the way that it handles. But it still was it was still pretty good and it's it's deceptively quick. The, the, because this engine doesn't you know sing and make all this noise like the old one, you don't get that same sensation that sort of links the sound with how fast you're going. And so it's it's a very rev happy engine too. The the two liter has been calibrated to sort of make its best um, outputs at the top end of the rev range. So peak torque doesn't come in until about 5,000 meters or something. So it sort of acts like a naturally aspirated engine that is very gradual, very linear, which is quite nice. But then you sort of look down at the speedo and you're like, oh, shit. And I'm like, I'm, 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 I'm reaching the speed limit. Um, and, and France has a lot of speed cameras. I, thank God, didn't get caught by one. But I think there was a couple of journalists on this trip that got, got done by some of the speed cameras. Um, but, yeah, so it was – it's sort of like a mixed bag. Not And the, when I say mixed bag, it's not that there's anything really that bad, perhaps other than when we slowed things down a little bit. There's a couple of times where the transmission can be caught out um, shifting. I think it's second to third or third to second and then third to fourth or fourth to third. It's like that low, that sort of in between because it's got nine gears. It's a multi-clutch transmission which has a, a wet clutch launch gear instead of a torque converter. That all sounds like gibberish. Um, but... It's meant to shift faster, I think. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, some of the, some of the low speed quibbles are a little bit annoying. So the it sometimes would clunk into gear, or when you try to get going and it has to kick down when you're in that in between stage, it sort of gives you this sort of weird jerking sensation, which doesn't feel particularly refined for a vehicle that's likely going to cost well about one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. And then the the idle stop start system. You know, some other mild hybrid vehicles that I've driven of late have been really, really good. I 
call out specifically the Audi A3 35 TFSI, which has the 48-volt mod hybrid system with a 1.5-litre turbo petrol engine. That thing was incredibly seamless and really well calibrated so that, you know, it, it would fire up when you want it to and react when you want. This one, it, it, it sort of will shut off the engine normal and it's it's you're well isolated from the sensation. But then not having auto hold on, you still have to press the accelerator before it fired up again and started going. And in that process, if you're in any sort of incline, it sort of rocks back, which is quite frightening the yeah. first couple of times you do it. Yeah. So there was just a few like powertrain or mechanical refinements there that perhaps these being early production vehicles will be ironed out as as new ones come down the production line but there was just little quibbles like that where i was like mm, that's i wouldn't be happy with that if it was my car um i also mm. wish that we, they, they, they would bring the wagon but there's no plans to bring any c-class wagons to australia at this stage according to mercedes-benz australia um i guess if you want a wagon you'll just have to wait for the glc but i guess with the with the c43 i think in terms of how it retains its character or its its place in the lineup compared to the previous generation because now the new C-Class is going to be all four cylinders. The, the next C63 is switching out the V8 for um, this same engine with a plug-in hybrid system. So it'll probably be manically quick, um, but we don't know how it's going to sound, handle, all that kind of thing. So I think it still has that like, you know, Autobahn Stormer, you know, daily GT vibe about it. It's it's not the car that I would necessarily pick as a, a sharp edge driver's tool, but um, I think that it does a really good job at being like a really nice all rounder that's very fast and it's genuinely comfortable. If you put it in comfort comfort mode, all the cars on the launch had twenty inch rims, which are optional. I think eighteen's are standard in in Europe. The twenty inch rims in comfort mode were genuinely comfortable and. The French country roads and almost like Australian ones, they're not that great. So it's not like we were we had beautifully smooth bitumen that you know there wasn't any lumps or bumps in there. We the the ride compliance is is quite impressive. So if obviously Mercedes's tech is is very impressive and the C class interior is just wow, but if someone was just in the market for a sports sedan and they didn't necessarily want to go whole hog and step up to an M3 or a C63 or something, and they were just at, at this kind of price point. Do you think um, that this is what you would recommend or do you think an M340i or even an S4, even though it's a bit older, is 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 the superior kind of sports sedan? Yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting question to ask, and I think it really depends on what you're looking for in the car. So back to what I was saying before, if you want like the – the sharp edge drivers tool, I would probably be pointing you in the direction of the BMW or perhaps like the whatever version of the Alfa Romeo Giulia is equivalent. Um, the the way that this handles is not going to really satisfy those kind of people. I think this sort of sits between the the BMW and the Audi in that, you know, the Audi is very practical. It's got very good tech. It's a very comfortable, drivable daily. Um, perhaps not quite. It's a little bit old in terms of the tech now and it's also maybe not as quick as the C-Class from memory. I think it's a couple of... Um, tenths off the pace, whereas the BMW is going to be the one that people want that little, it's, it's going to be a little bit firmer, it's going to be a little bit sharper in terms of the handling. So if you're a bit more of a keener driver and you're, you want something that gives you more a more connected feel, that's probably going to be the one for you. Um, the other thing about the Merck's tech, which I should probably call out, is that the way that Mercedes has designed this interior is just, it's all these, all the displays look like tacked on iPads. And while it <laughs> 
while the way they've integrated the infotainment system probably makes sense um, and it, it actually the way that it, it's placed and and angled and angled it's all sort of works well and falls easily to hand I still find that the the instrument cluster that just sort of looks like it was plonked there is not my favorite thing. I still prefer the integration of like Audi products where the virtual cockpit sort of has this, the conventional cowl and things like that. And it all looks a little bit conventional with a, with a modern twist, but you know, I think it's all down to personal taste. And, and when you're at this end of the market with these kind of brands, I think that not a whole lot of people are really cross shopping between different brands. I think they might go into like, a, a, I feel like someone who's looking at a C43 might also look at a CLA 45, for example. They might be thinking, oh, I want a sedan with that's high performance in the $100,000, $120,000 bracket. I can get a CLA 45, which is a little bit quicker, a little bit smaller, perhaps a little bit sharper, and you know, I could have a bit of fun with on the racetrack. Or I can get the C43, which is similar, a little bit slower, a little bit bigger, a little bit more practical, a little bit more comfortable. I think that's the kind of thing that we're looking at here. The, these brands have the people who buy into these brands are very loyal and I know that that's changing with younger demographics and, you know, certain um, other, you know, as as the mix of people come in, the tastes are going to diversify. But I think that um, the the three main competitors from Germany are are all distinctly different. And so to really just say which one's the best as an objective sort of clear cut thing is perhaps not, as easy to do and I don't feel like that's the way to look at it. I think it's more to decide what really is your preference or priority in terms of what you want out of your car. I think that, you know, you've got the practical side, the 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 really driver-focused side and then the somewhere in between. I think the Mercedes is somewhere in between. Yeah. All right. That sounds like a, a perfect way to wrap up that uh, review. You've given it a car expert rating of eight and you can read the review now. Thank you, Jaywo. Thank you. Well, next week's podcast, guys, is going to be pretty big. Number 100. We'll have to think of some plans as to how to celebrate that, I think. I think we need to be all in the same room. Wow. That's a good idea. Funny you should say that because I will actually be down in Melbourne next week. No way. Because we started this during lockdown. So we were forced into being in separate rooms and buildings. So I Mm. I think we might might need to be all together for that one. Full circle, I think. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, definitely. Um, Will, what cars have we got in the garage next week? Well, we have, down in Melbourne, because I'll be down there, um, a Toyota Kluger Grande all-wheel drive, Mazda MX-5, Mitsubishi Triton GLS, an Audi Q5 35 TDI, And I think I spy a comparison in the works because we have a Volkswagen Polo GTI and a similarly priced Hyundai i30 N-Line premium hatch. Uh, Who who is going to be uh, riding that comparison, James? I don't know, but I pitched it, so maybe I should probably put my hand up for it. It was sort of like the similar price. The new Polo is quite a bit larger, quite a bit larger than most like light hatchbacks and they've got similar power as well similar drivetrain layout, that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, we'll see how that goes. Interesting. Um, In Brisbane, we have a Toyota Hilux Rogue. I think we've had a Hilux on the site for a little while, which uh, we need to rectify because it is Australia's best-selling vehicle. Um, uh, We also have a Mitsubishi Outlander Aspire. And in Sydney, we have a Volkswagen T-Cross style. 
thank you guys, and hopefully I'll actually see you in person next week for episode 100. Sounds like a plan for me. <laughs> oh, just as so long as there's cake. <laughs>